You'll understand how Paris is called the City of Light when you step into one of its many Gothic churches on a sunny afternoon. Suddenly, the sun came out, and it came through the clerestory windows, which are up at the high point of the cathedral, and it was dazzling. Coming up, we get a guide to the sacred places of Paris. An American raising a family in France compares how mothers in the two countries handle their kids. French parenting is, from all appearances, less intense than American parenting. And author Frances Mays reminds us what she appreciates most about her home in Tuscany. Italians live with a sense of beauty. And I think if you live in a place of beauty, it begins to transform you. Making ourselves at home even when it's in another country, raising a family in a small town in France, and seeking out the sacred spaces to visit in Paris. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Paris is home to dozens of remarkable churches, synagogues, and even a grand mosque. Most of them are open to the public during the day and give you a space to feel inspired. We'll explore what you can see in the city's sacred spaces in just a minute. And in a bit, a young American mom tells us how she's adapting to being a French mama as she raises her bicultural family near Paris. Plus, author Frances Mays tells us how pandemic closures helped her to view her homes in Tuscany and North Carolina in a new light. Paris has some amazing churches. You can view them as historic buildings with impressive architecture. You can view them as great places to go for a concert with wonderful acoustics. Or you might regard Paris's venerable places of worship as quiet refuges where you can escape the hubbub of the streets and take a moment to get close to God. Susan Cahill has identified 30 great churches as well as synagogues in Paris and the city's Grand Mosque as a way to showcase the city's spiritual, artistic, and cultural history. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about what she features in her book. It's called Sacred Paris, a guide to the churches, synagogues, and the Grand Mosque in the City of Light. Susan, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So Paris is the City of Light. What does that mean to you? Well, in the very early church in the third century, they considered light the presence of God. So God was light. And that's the first line in the Gospel of St. John. And actually, it made sense to me because when I walked into the Cathedral of Saint-Denis in northern Paris, suddenly the sun came out and it came through the clerestory windows, which are up at the high point of the cathedral, And it was dazzling. I could hardly see. And I understood how they felt that way. And Susan, people got to remember that the Basilica of St. Denis is where Gothic architecture was basically invented, right? By Abbot Suzanne. Absolutely, right. So that's 800 years ago. And the big deal about Gothic is what? How was Gothic different from Romanesque? Well, for one thing, it was constructed so that the light would come in. It wouldn't be blocked by thick stone walls. Uh, And there were many more windows, and they highlighted just the fact of the architecture with color. So it was absolutely different from Romanesque, which was the early church architecture. You know, I often think about that, Susan. When I, If I was a Christian going to church in 1100, the church would be dark, and you could hardly read because it's so dark. And right, So right. It, it must have been so dazzling to have light coming into the churches. And when we go to these great places of worship, these, these churches in Paris, 
where are some moments, if you're walking around Paris, it's a great city for walking around, you stumble into a church you didn't even know the name of, and you go, whoa, what a discovery. Your book is a great handbook for somebody who's going to be walking out in the streets and stumbling into these churches. What are a couple churches that really struck you as, whoa, more people should check this place out? Well, my favorite church is Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Saint-Germain, he was a bishop, de Prey of the fields, because it was open Hmm. country back then. Uh, And it was founded in, I think, about the 7th century. And then it has changed, and now they've just done a massive reconstruction, and it's absolutely gorgeous. They've also found some 12th century statuary in garbage dumps uh, nearby. Hmm. (laughs) And the thing that they've found that just stuns me is a statue of this the Virgin and the Smile, Surya. It's stunning. Uh, and they keep changing its location in Saint-Germain-de-Prey, <laughs> I think, to show it off at its best. Ah, you know, I love this idea about approaching Paris as a, a collection of surprises and yes, discoveries. Yes, absolutely. And the, the city is speckled with these churches. They're open, they're free, and they're filled with surprises. When you think, as, as you research your book, tell me a, just a surprise that, that hit you when you stepped into a church. Well, I was told that uh, Saint-Germain de Chiron, which is out in Chiron, it's not actually a suburb. It's just on the edge of Paris. It has paintings, and that's one of the things. Le Monde ran an article about during the pandemic, churches were the place to go to see art because all the museums were closed. But the churches were open, and their art is spectacular. You know, they've got Delacroix, they've got Tiepolo, they've got Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, it's incredible to see, and I never expected it. So that is a big surprise. So art can be a surprise when you step into a church? Yes. Um, music can be a surprise also. What's what's a musical moment you've enjoyed in a church oh in my. Paris? Well, they usually, to me, their best concerts, and you know, featuring the Orchestre de Paris... And the great choirs have been for special holidays and feast days. For instance, the Verdi Requiem was sung and played for the anniversary of the end of World War One, November 11th, 1918. So I saw it 2018. I couldn't believe it. For one thing, the acoustics of these old churches are magnificent, and this rendition of Verdi's Requiem. I've heard it in in New York, but I never heard it like this. And Hmm. Paris, they sit still, they don't cough, you do not see a phone. And at the end, they just clapped and stood and were so happy. Another one that had the same kind of electricity was the anniversary of D-Day. There was not an empty seat. And in fact, it was held in San Ustak, which is a very large church. It was filled. You, you know, you need to take initiative to find out about those uh, events, those concerts, those special services. I mean, you can find that online. Absolutely. You can find it in the right. Periscope. One of my favorite musical moments was in San Sulpice. And uh, after the Mass, traditionally, a little door in the back of the, the church opens up and and organ lovers can scamper up the spiral staircase and go into the organ law yes. and actually be there with the organist as he performs a little concert between the masses. And talk about acoustics. Mm. All of them. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Susan Cahill, and we're exploring the great religious architecture of Paris. She's identified about 30 places of worship that she writes about in her book, Sacred Paris. I was talking, Susan, about surprises, and there's a little church just across the river from the Notre Dame on the left bank in a park uh, right next to the oldest tree in Paris. Oh, I, I think know you know that. the church I'm talking about. Right. The church of uh, Saint-Julien Le Pauvre. Yes. And I've walked into that church many times, and it's usually been very quiet and, and lifeless, frankly. Yeah. And on my last visit, I walked in, and it was filled with incense and candles and mystery. And then I realized it's been adopted by the Eastern Orthodox community in the city. Right. And now it's filled with life. And it reminded me, we need to step into these churches to, to, to appreciate them. Um, I agree. I put in my book uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, St. Alexandra Nevsky, which is up in the 8th arrondissement. And it was... So that's near the Arc, near the Arc de Triomphe. Exactly, yeah. right. And I have to say, at, there were times when that was my favorite because it was so reverential. It was very quiet, mm-hmm. but there were plenty of people there. And I was shocked by how mystical that felt. And I'm, I'm not looking for that. If you, if you put yourself in the mindset of somebody from a different denomination or a different religion altogether, it can really be a great travel experience. In Paris, you also featured synagogues and the Grand Mosque. Tell us a, just briefly about the synagogues in Paris and then the mosque. There are several, yeah, there are quite a few synagogues, and I chose two. One is the oldest, La Victoire, on Rue de la Victoire. But I was shocked because I had been warned in New York, they'll never let you in, you have to be Jewish, da-da-da-da-da. Well, I got there on a Friday night for Shabbat, and other people, we were all waiting, we became friends. And then the usher came in, asked where we were all from, New York, the greatest city in the world. I thought, wait a minute, buddy, we're standing in the greatest uh, city of the world. But he didn't check our pocketbooks. He didn't take our passports. We just went in. And the liturgy was so gorgeous. And the place is ravishing. It has, you know, those deep blue windows, like they have in Notre Dame, and gold everywhere, red velvet liners on the pews, white marble gleaming, and all these happy people. Nobody looks sad in a synagogue. And then I went to another one, Nazareth, which is the oldest synagogue on Rue de Nazareth near République, smaller than La Victoire, but it's so pretty and charming. But they did interrogate me at the door. They kept saying, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? And I have to say I lied because I really wanted to see this synagogue. And not only that, I'm a New Yorker, lifelong. All New Yorkers are part Jewish. Uh, That's what we all tell one another. So it was a joke, and they knew I was lying, and it was funny, and they offered me some of the uh, Kaddish. Uh Uh, But it's charming, a beautiful place, but not as big and as grand as Slavitoire. But this beautiful place that is still in action, and people are still going there. And you can tell they're proud to go there. I just loved it. Susan Cahill is the author of Sacred Paris. It's an illustrated neighborhood guide to the city's grandest religious architecture. She's also written Hidden Gardens of Paris. And her book, The Streets of Paris, follows famous Parisians through the city's history. Her website is susancahill.net. That's spelled C-A-H-I-L-L. You know, Susan, when I was paging through this book, and it 
It's just so full of little insights, inspiring me to want to go back to Paris and pop into some of these churches. I was almost sort of jealous thinking how much time you've had to be able to go into these churches and appreciate them. What is one moment, one magical, spiritual, or personal moment you've had in a church in Paris? Well, this was not exactly, I don't know if you call it a church, but it's a sanctuary. I was just blown away when I walked into the mosque, the Grand Mosque. It is so beautiful. It is stunning. It's turquoise tiles and water flowing everywhere, palm trees up to the ceiling, everyone reverential, no one shouting. or, And that really did stir me. Um, I don't know that much about Islam, but the, the place when you walk in and just you want to know more. And it's, it's, it's impressively welcoming yes. to people who are, are just kind of curious, people that don't know much about Islam, and you're, you're welcome to go in. There's a garden. There's a tea room nearby. Right. Uh, it's near the Institute of the Arab World. It's just it's a fascinating dimension of Paris that I think savvy travelers, thoughtful travelers, recognize is an important part of Paris. Susan, I, I wish we had more time, but uh, we've got to wrap it up. I want to I thank you for writing Sacred Paris and... Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. An insider look at raising a family in France is next. And later, Frances Mays tells us how the pandemic helped her figure out the meaning of home. It's Travel with Rick Steves. As a high school student, Mary Campbell met a nice guy she couldn't forget during her foreign studies in France. She and Grégoire Baron fell in love, eventually married, and moved back to Paris to start a family. They now have three children, live in a small town near Fontainebleau, about an hour south of Paris, and stopped in for a visit with us at the Travel with Rick Steves studios here in Seattle while on a family vacation. Mary Campbell Baron is here to update us on what it's like being a mama in France. Mary, bonjour. Bonjour. It's a joy to be here. What an interesting story. <laughs> I mean, this is, you fell in love on your foreign study trip to France. That's right. As a kid. As a kid. Brought and home now, a young man with me to my father's first? delight. To your father's delight. Oh, he was like, what? <laughs> it's nice to have a boyfriend. Does he have to come? <laughs> <laughs> brought him Couldn't home. you bring a... I don't know, a keychain? <laughs> to bring a French man with you? Your French souvenir. He walks and talks. <laughs> That's right. And I want to marry him. I don't want to marry Yeah, not right away. No. no, he was so lucky he found a French bakery in Seattle that was organic, that was looking for specifically a French baker. And so he was able to come here on his own visa, his own thing. And he lived downtown. And then ah. I went to UW. And so we were able to continue to be together, but not immediately. Okay. So that that makes sense. Yeah. And And then you weren't blinded by the the charm of a, f- a young Frenchman. You had a chance to yeah, really. get to know each other Put properly. those sunglasses on, yeah. And then you became blinded by the <laughs> charm like, of a young Frenchman. Absolutely. Yeah. So he loved it. He had a really great time in Seattle. He didn't speak any English when he got here and really just plunged right in. You know, it's interesting because there's a cultural gap between the French and the Americans, and oh, yeah. you would know it as well as anybody. Oh, yeah. And the French must look at Americans, the French who are not necessarily broad-minded or cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they would just go, 
sacre bleu. You know? <laughs> What's and, going and, on here? And, and Americans look at the French and they go, you know, ooh la, nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Yeah, there's a lot of moments when French people and American people can kind of pass like ships in the night and yeah. one can be offended and the other one can be offended and really it's just they haven't respected their very specific codes. It is fascinating because I find that the irony is a lot of Americans say the French are rude and they just don't understand how incredibly polite they're being because they That's have this right. passion for discretion. Discretion, yeah, and respect of other people's spaces and distance. And so, tradition. And it's tradition, done this way. yes. And when people, um, when American people, when we kind of come in too hot and fast. Right, hot and fast. That's yes. it. And they yes. just you take them by storm. My uncle's name is Stormin' Norman, you know, and Stormin' Norman. That's the American slap on the back. Good old buddy. Yeah. Hi, how's it going? First name basis. Yeah. And And for a French person, they're like, why are they asking me how I'm doing? Because they don't even know me. Like, what what an overly personal question. Yeah, yeah. You know? And the other way around, when the French come here and then someone asks, how are you doing? And then they give a real answer. Yeah. <laughs> the cashier's a bit overwhelmed. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't really want to have an honest. <laughs> I was looking for a great, thanks. There's a little more sincerity or something in Europe. Mm-hmm. There's a little more, mm-hmm. you know, a little more candid, a little more frank, more, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And everybody's not trying to be the happiest person in the Budweiser commercial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's huh. true. So you've adjusted. Long short story short, you have become <laughs> French. I have become French. Yes. So I have. You live in it's not only just French, like, oh, I'm staying in an apartment in Paris. Yep. Suburban mom with Suburban with three mom kids. French. Totally. Yep. <laughs> I organize pumpkin sales and. <laughs> what is a suburban? You know what? You know, you think of a suburban mom here, Girl Scout troop and soccer oh, yeah. club and piano lessons. Yep. And, totally. Uh, what are you going to keep the kids busy in the summer when they mm-hmm. don't go to school? Mm-hmm. What, what's a, what occupies a suburban mom's concerns these days. What age are your kids? They are 8, 10, and 12. So like first grade, third, third grade, grade, and, and fifth grade. grade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're right in the thick of it. Absolutely. Okay, so what suburban mom, what's that like in Paris, outside of Paris in a suburb? Let's see. French parenting is, from all appearances, less intense than American parenting, uh-huh. as in French parents kind of take a big step back uh, from it all. Okay. Two things come to mind. Mm-hmm. Helicopter mom and laissez-faire. Yes, <laughs> totally. You know yes, what I mean? Laissez-faire. Laissez-faire. It's, it's the opposite. They're going to figure it out. They're going to figure it out. Yeah. So there's there's a real big step back. There's a, They're going to learn this in school. They're going to learn this in daycare. Uh-huh. Here are my rules. Here's what we do at home. Here's what's polite. And then they get less involved in the nitty-gritty of, of it all, I find. Just general comparison. You know, I think that has been a change in our culture because mm-hmm. when I was a kid— Parents weren't as involved. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't as much required of parents as far as mm-hmm. being involved in all of the activities. Kids, mm-hmm. the vacant lot, come home for dinner. Mm-hmm. You know, that's uh, right. Take your bike and go. And, and now, it's almost comical. It's almost embarrassing how overbearing. A-plus parents are. That's right. You just don't have yeah. that A-plus parent going on in that's Paris right. so much. We were at the park yesterday in Bainbridge, and there were parents waiting for their kids to come down the slide yeah. and my kids all turned around there was like applause they were like amazing wait out yeah that's such a good slide <laughs> like good slide is there a way to do it wrong mom asks my daughter and i'm like no she's just congrats he's just they're just enthusiastic it's that nice <laughs> is a very keen insight that you get when you go from a parisian suburb to a seattle suburb 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mary Campbell Brun, and she's an American who married a Frenchman, raising her family just outside of Paris. And today, Mary works as a food stylist for advertisers. We have a link to Mary's blog archives where she writes about how Parisians might find us worth staring at and uh, how she learned to deal with French bureaucracy and just the challenges of an American moving into France and adopting that culture. You can listen to Mary's earlier conversations with us about being a young mother in France and special things uh, she might have noticed about being in Paris. It's in the links that we provide with our show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Mary, you've got a fifth grader, third grader, and a first grader. Your kids are in the thick of it now, all yeah. in grade school. They are in the thick of it, but, you know, school starts really young in France. So already daycare starts at three months old. So from three months to three years, they're in, if you're lucky to get a spot, they're in wonderful full-time care where oh. they're already teaching them how to share now, and play and yeah. yeah, sit at a table, cut their food. So there's already that training happening. Mm-hmm. And then the first time they go to school, school mm-hmm. is called maternelle. It's the petit section. And that's when they're three. Three. Yeah. So, so you have to have be potty trained and you have to be three and then you can go to school. Potty trained and three. Yeah. I, I could qualify. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's a big uh, challenge in America. We were trying to recognize the value of preschool. Preschool. Yeah. And France has already recognized it. Oh, yeah. Value. Well, they just call it school, school. So school, school starts at three uh-huh. and it's all day. So it starts at 830 in the morning Yeah. and it goes all the way until 430. And then you have an option to pay on a sliding scale for the garderie, which is the after-school program, until 6.30. So that would accommodate people who are working outside the home. Absolutely. So all of the services around kids are designed to help parents who want to work, work. Hmm. So I think France has an agenda. So there is it, because I've been impressed when I'm traveling around. I see this is the uh, preschool center, and this is Mm -hmm. the... Mother's Maternal Health Center, Mm -hmm. and all of this stuff designed, it seems like, with a big loving heart, but it's also designed for a better economy, I suppose. I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. You know, I think it's the growing up in America and with the kind of entrepreneurial parents that I have, we're always really in tune to kind of what's going on, what's the economic interest of all of this, why would they do this? So I think there is a big altruistic feminist part of it. And Uh then I also see the nuts and bolts of we need these women back on their feet, participating in their jobs. It's an investment. It is. It's an investment. And that you can see it starting in just the length of the school day. Mm -hmm. Now, you also have something called the uh, class vert, the like green studies. Yes, green studies. So so first there's the maternelle, and then when they're six, they go into CP, so then they're in primaire, so that's elementary school. Uh And starting in elementary school and all the way up to high school, which is lycée, Uh they organize week-long school field trips for their kids, Mm -hmm. specifically designed to get City kids into the country, mountain kids out to the beach, beach kids into the mountain. So they integrate this so that everyone gets a chance to travel and see their own country. Then they become less siloed. They're not just Mm -hmm. a a small town girl or an Mm -hmm. urban guy or something like that. They empathize with each other. That is sort of parallel with the whole Erasmus program Mm -hmm. that helps fund studies like between students and teachers Mm -hmm. in the next country in the EU. That's right. Yeah. So that's another investment. It is another investment, yeah. Not all kids eat at the school cafeteria, but almost all of them do. Mm-hmm. And the cafeteria is another part of cultural investment where they want to expose them to different foods. 
Um, Expose them to different foods? Mm-hmm, yeah. We just grow up with pigs in a blanket, man. That's all we need. <laughs> you don't right. need exposure no. to different foods. They French have, kids are learning yeah. to appreciate high cuisine. That's right. And they have every time entrée, plat, dessert, fromage, pain. So Wait a always... minute. You're, you're, <laughs> in the, you're in the school cafeteria in fourth yeah. grade and the kids get four course lunches? Starting at three. Yeah. Even in petite section. They're going to the canteen, they've got their plates for them, and they're having a three-course meal every time with cheese. I've noticed that, come to think of it, that mm-hmm. even in the home, kids are really taught to have that elegance with their dining, yeah. not just eating. It slows dining. them down. If travelers are ever walking around in France and you walk in front of a school yeah. on the bulletin board outside, they'll always have the menu for the week posted, uh-huh. and it's really fun to I look at. It. That's yeah. a great insight. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mary Campbell Barone. She's our guest today because she's in town with her family visiting from Paris. And you've got three kids that are in the midst of their childhood in France. Now, you said you're interested in maternal well-being in France. That's a, a passion of yours. It is a what passion. What is the challenge in French culture for the, the wellness of the mother? Well, I think their focus is on wellness, which means, to me, preventative care. So again, like we were saying earlier, they want moms to give birth, be successful in their mothering, and then get themselves back to work and also have time for themselves. So the ideal situation for a French mom is they have a job that they like and they are good at. They have time with their kids that they enjoy. Their kids are getting a great education. And so they also have some alone time where they're neither with their kids nor at work. So they kind of find the this balance. The government tuned into all this stuff? Yeah. Don't yeah. you find that interesting? Because here we'd almost be offended by that. Right. And then we're on our own and we're subjected to the forces of the market and everything. Mm-hmm. And, it, and you could make a case that it screws people up. Yeah, I think so it does. So in France, you've got that, what a lot of Americans would find would be big brother or big mother kind mm-hmm. of government. But it works for people. It does. I think that French women really take time for themselves. And that starts right after birth. So you've given birth to a child. A few weeks later, the government covers in your sort of healthcare package for giving birth 10 sessions with either a midwife or a physical therapist, which is just for the mom. And it's all about getting your perineum or we call it sometimes your pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. So all the muscles that compose the private parts of a lady, are taken care of. So you do a half an hour worth of special exercises, special breathing Uh to strengthen and tone those parts of your body so that women don't have to deal with things like incontinence, which is a really big problem after pregnancy. Lots of moms laugh about not being able to run or laugh or jump on a trampoline. Um, French people do not have that on their radar. So they've got everything back on ship shape. And it's also about getting their sex life back on track because the government wants you to have three children, right? So... (laughs) See, I I don't know all the details about this, but I would imagine this is news for a lot of American moms to think that you could be um, proactive in your post- Natal care. Yeah, care. exactly. Because right. I know there's a lot of women that, that have hard challenges after giving birth. Mm-hmm. Is this different in France compared to the United States? It is. So all women have access to this. Almost right. all women use it. And again, it's matter Regardless of how much money they have. Exactly. Regardless it's, of how much education they absolutely. have. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of they a rite of passage. Of it. It's yeah. a rite of passage. <laughs> really and is. then... They're back on board. Their their sex they're life come back. They're, they're not going to be yeah. dis- disadvantaged physically in That's any way right. going forward. That's right. It's a good practical investment. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm learning a lot. Talking with Mary Campbell Barone. 
Mary, I know that your new job, because I knew you as a tour guide and mm-hmm. your work in uh, introducing Americans to the cultural differences yeah. in Paris, you know, but now you're a, a highly sought after and I understand quite successful commercial food stylist. That's right. What is that? <laughs> it is one of the funnest jobs around, Rick. So I grew up in a family that worked in advertising, so I knew about the advertising world. Mm -hmm. I grew up with a love of food, which is just a personal passion. I know that (laughs) from my experience with you in the past, yes. So I was trying to figure out how can I mix these two things together. I went to a book show in Paris. There was a woman who was talking about a book she wrote about food styling, and I thought, oh, maybe this is it. So it's a food stylist. In French, it's called a styliste culinaire. I work on television commercials for brands like macaroni and cheese brands, a yogurt brand, a camembert brand. So you make things look better than they actually are. That's right. So just like supermodels look better than they actually are, you pick a pretty lady, you put lipstick on her, and you adjust the lighting, right? Right. So I'm doing that with a piece of... Delicious. Cheese. cheese. So so we're picking the cheese. We're doing a casting call of all the cheeses. I cut it open. I take some blotting paper so it doesn't sweat. I put a little bit of baby powder on the outside so it's that white, brie, velvety texture. Do you spend much time on these sites that I call food porn sites? (laughs) Food porn, yeah. Because I think they're gorgeous. They are, yeah, but I'm making the porn. porn. You're doing it. Yeah. Because, I mean, you can make a gourmet hamburger look just sexy as can be. That's right. And what's fun is to explore the different aesthetic points of view. So mm-hmm. mostly I'm working for French clients. Mm-hmm. And so I have to kind of adjust my own American taste to what they're looking for. Yeah. So usually I want to make portions that are bigger. And the French are always saying, put less on the plate, less on the plate. Less I'm like, on the okay, plate. okay, I'll yeah. make it smaller. <laughs> and then when we have other, you know, France is a hub for filmmaking, for commercial shooting, mm-hmm. for photography. It always has been. And so we'll have Germans come in. We'll have people from Amsterdam come in. We've got the British coming down. Sometimes we have Americans that are shooting. And so since I'm bilingual, I get to work a lot with the international crews. And so it's fun to then have to adjust the way you're presenting the food to fit that market's version of delicious. So you have to adjust it visually for that adjust clientele, yes. that market. Yes, yes. And so for one example, we had a ham commercial. And we were shooting the pack shot, so the last shot of the commercial where you've got, like, the packaging and then the ham on a little cutting board. And we were doing it for the French market, the Italian market, and the German market. I was in tears. I was laughing so hard. It was such a funny cliche about how, how to different? fold the ham. So the <laughs> the Italians wanted you to, like, fold the ham into, like, a rose, like a curly cue that you see, like, in a molding on one of their beautiful buildings. And then the German client was like, can you just lay them flat, please, like, in a row, <laughs> like, just one. One, two, three. Like marching in <laughs> yes. order, like, okay, Octoon. <laughs> yeah. I was Octoon, like, hand. are you sure? Can we put a little volume? No, 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 we like it like this. And then the French were in between, like, some movement, but still natural looking. Like, they didn't want it to be a fake movement. So yeah. you're trying to make a little ruffle in the, a discreet ruffle in the ham. Meeting Gregoire and having this French dimension to your life yeah. has been quite a blessing. It has. I, you know, don't you, don't, you think about those little forks in the road? You do. And if you don't yeah. say we, yeah. You don't go anywhere. That's right, Rick. I think there's so much to that. As I'm training new young food stylists yeah. that are nervous about being freelance or nervous about yeah. working on, on their own, and I'm just like, just say yes, guys. Just, just go yes. for it. If something presents itself, that's an experience. Yeah. Just say yes. Just say yes. All right. Mary, I could talk with you forever. I just <laughs> want to say thank you for dropping by. Sure. And uh, best wishes with your parenting. 
and best wishes with making food look sexy in France. (laughs) And let's talk again next time you're in town. Yes, please. Thanks, Rick. Au revoir. Mary Campbell-Baron first joined us on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how Parisians looked out for her as a young mother. Her American Mother in Paris interview in 2011 helped us win the gold prize for travel radio from the Lowell Thomas Awards. We also have links to Mary's past interviews about how to walk and eat like a Parisian. You'll find them with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Frances Mays wrote about her life under the Tuscan sun. She joins us next to explore what Italian culture has taught her about how to feel at home. Author Frances Mays knows how homes have the power to shape and define us as much as we shape and define them. Thirty years ago, she fell instantly in love with a 200-year-old fixer-upper farmhouse in Tuscany. It's been her muse and renovation project ever since. Her best-selling book, Under the Tuscan Sun, tells the story. And now, Frances has compiled a collection of essays about finding the meaning of home in her new book, A Place in the World. She joins us now to talk about what home has meant to her, especially after the lockdowns that kept so many of us home during the pandemic. Frances, thanks for being here. Thank you, Rick. I'm so delighted to be with you. I understand you're just home from six months in Italy. How was it being back in Italy? Yes, it was absolutely wonderful. Of course, you know, the past two years, travel has been so fraught. And it was just amazing to be there and have it be kind of semi-normal again. <laughs> my my last book came out just as COVID hit Italy. It was a travel book, Always Italy. And no one wanted to hear about Italy at that point. So it was great being there this summer and seeing uh, the rebound of uh, travel there and people being so excited about being back in Europe again. And your home in Italy is in a beautiful town or on the edge of a beautiful town, Cortona. Does Cortona Cortona feel back to normal? Is the energy in the streets post-COVID and everything? Yes, it's exhilarating how it bounced back. The Italians were so courageous all during covid And, you know, it really paid off. They have just come back, like, doubly strong. And there's just kind of a sense of exhilaration that things are normal again, more or less, more or less. (laughs) You know, when I go back and assess how Europe's doing, it's it's really the the energy in the street that I I find I'm looking for. And in Italy, you've got it in the piazza, and you've you've got it, uh, just the love of life, the the passeggiata. Yes. And Italy without the passeggiata, Italy without the piazza, really is not Italy. No, it isn't. That living room aspect of the piazza is one of the things I love best about being in Italy is, you know, everyone comes out. You go in town and get your cheese and you get a recipe and you go into the wine store and you're invited to a tasting. And there's just such a convivial, delightful sense of life being lived right up front. Convivial. That's a word I love to use when I'm talking about Italy. Hey, I'm so excited to talk about your book. Your new book, it's called A Place in the World, Finding the Meaning of Home. You live in in the United States and in Italy, so you've got two homes, essentially, that you settle into. And when you wrote Under the Tuscan Sun, I'd say you became one of the most famous homemakers in the country. Uh, You know, you've spent decades fixing it up. And what did your experience fixing up your fixer-upper teach you about turning a a house into a home. I mean, think about the experience you had 
moving into Italy and, and making a home. It was so unplanned in that sense. I thought I was going there to write and travel. I didn't really think of it as home, but it became that over the years. And I've just completed a third restoration. So uh, during COVID, I started thinking a lot about that very question, like, why is, why is that home? And I realized that of all the writing I've done, a whole lot of it has been around home that you know, the return to home of the traveler and the back and forth pull of want to go to the airport, want to stay mm-hmm. home, that the lure of travel and the pull of home. I began to think a lot about that during COVID and came up with that idea that it's always such a marvelous feeling to travel home and equally marvelous to go. And I started thinking about, you know, what what is it that defines home? So that's basically what the book is about. Not that I've got a lot of answers, but it raised a lot of questions. That's so interesting to think that we travel to get away from home, but in a sense, good travel is being at home, quote, at home on the road. You wrote, much about home is imagining home. As you were in, in Italy, what did you learn from your Italian friends? What did the Italian culture teach you about being at home? Well, this is so interesting to me that there's no word for home in the Italian language when it is just so quintessential to their character, that that sense of home, but they don't really have a word for it. But I started to feel at home there, and it was very mysterious to me because it's not my country. It will never be. I'm just, you know, not a drop of Italian blood or anything. But why did I feel at home there? And that was that's what I'm examining in this book. Frances Mays is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. Her memoir, Under the Tuscan Sun, remained a bestseller for more than two years. She's written a number of titles about her life at her villa, Brahma Sole, near Cortona in Italy, and how it contrasts with her life in America. Frances explores the power of place in her most recent book, A Place in the World, Finding the Meaning of Home. You'll find links to Frances's work and her prior conversations with us at ricksteves.com radio. I think part of it is that... Italians live with a sense of beauty. And I think if you live in a place of beauty, it begins to transform you. You you get changed by it and you have more expectations that other things will be beautiful. And there's this kind of leap I make in the book. Why is that? Why, why does beauty affect us like that? And I came to these leaping conclusions that it promotes generosity, and that generosity is what really defines Italians to me. They are always giving you something, and that giving makes you feel like a whole different sense of living. I mean, there's so many aspects of that that keep coming up for me, but finding a basket of figs on my gate, a dozen eggs, you know, right inside the gate, people bringing over things constantly, there's this... This feeling of of that in Italy that really makes me feel at home there and makes me feel equally that I want to give. It's really profound kind of experience for me. 
it's almost a challenge for Americans because we come from a time-is-money culture where everybody is, you know, you say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm real busy, you know, as, as if we brag about yes. being really busy. Yes. In Italy, there's that generosity, there's that tempo of life, there's that dolce far niente, the sweetness of doing nothing. Yes. The, the hospitality, the, the just the, the mind-blowing hospitality. <laughs> you can be inspired yes, by that. You can, and a sense of being at home in time too, is something I've really learned to appreciate there. People have time for you. Talk about that, the tempo of life. The house becomes a symbol to me. I read this book a long time ago called Poetics of Space. Bachelard says in there, the house protects the dreamer. And I started thinking about that as a part of the traveler. You come back to the place where you have the protection of the dreamer and the house is where you are most creative, where you you try to be the person you set out to be. And I have all these um, hmm. feelings about the house in those terms. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with author Frances Mays. Her latest book is A Place in the World, and it explores her passion and obsessions with houses and objects and the people that inhabit them and the meaning of home. We have links to her books and our previous interviews with Frances about her favorite places and foods in Italy with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. You know, Frances, you call your house Brahma Sole, to yearn for the sun, and you call Brahma Sole your muse. How can your house be your muse? It's a place that inspires me, and I think that's that's what a muse is, is whatever inspires you, but... Just looking out into that same valley where people have looked for 300 years and having a, a, a secret private study where it's all mine and it's where I go. It's where I'm protected as the dreamer. And the house becomes rather iconic in that circumstance where it's not just where you're protected from the wolf, you know, the four walls and where you hang your clothes and love your family and entertain and all that, but it goes beyond that to me that these, the house becomes a kind of symbolic temple. I, it's a, that's a big word for me, but it's a, it's a strong concept, and it, is, it does seem like you know one of the holiest things in your life hmm. is where your life takes place. There's rituals with a temple, and you talked about that in your book. You wrote so beautifully about the rituals of when you arrive the smell of of the vegetation outside and the rustle of the wind. What's it like when you arrive after being gone? As I mentioned, you split your your time between North Carolina and Tuscany. When you do go back to Tuscany, how do you set yourself up? How do you rekindle that beautiful home fire? I leave the place set up for return. I leave the book I'm reading open on the bed. I leave my papers in a certain order. I I leave it just so when I come back, it's as if I never left. Hmm. And that's kind of a ritual that I go through every time I leave. And coming back, it just feels totally natural. When I come back to North Carolina, I have such a different sense, and I can't really explain it, but it's not the place that inspires me in the same way. But North Carolina is where I get really most of my work done. But I'm much more of a hunter-gatherer in Italy, and I'm, you know, taking notes and reading a lot and seeing tons of people and going places. And then I come back here, and it's a different kind of 
sanctuary where I'm not as involved with the piazza, for one thing. I'm not going into town every day, so I'm at home, and I'm able to work and concentrate. So in a way, it's a kind of a perfect balance, although sometimes it seems like, oh, you should choose one or the other. This is ridiculous no. to go back and forth all the time. Francis, in your book, A Place in the World, Finding the Meaning of Home, I was impressed that things are really important to you in the home, and I was thinking about it, and that makes some sense. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the importance of things that are collecting dust (laughs) in your beautiful getaway in Tuscany. I know, I try not to, I try not to, but I do, I have several collections of um, religious, what I call folk art, naive religious objects Mm -hmm. that I have been collecting for years. But my main thing I collect is books. And now I have so many books here and so many books there. And the book I want is always in the other place. (laughs) Ah, Oh, my goodness. But those are... um, What I do mostly is not collect things anymore. What I have been mostly focused on when I'm at home is gardening and making gardens and creating spaces, garden rooms, and have done a great deal of of work both in the United States and Italy on making gardens. And, you know, the root of a garden is walled paradise. And I've always thought surrounding your house with the outdoors that connects with the indoors Mm. is, is part of my feeling of what home is. I love gardens. I, I keep thinking about my image of your place in North Carolina and my image of your place in Tuscany. Just it's my general feeling about our life here in America and the fantasy of traveling in a place that has the patina of age. There's something about the patina of age and nature spilling indoors and indoors outdoors. And every charming place I've settled into in Italy has that patina of age that you just couldn't get where I live. And it also has that wonderful mix of nature creeping in to the interior and my interior spilling out into nature. I think you have that at Brahma Yes, the indoor, outdoor, indoor, outdoor is so transparent in Italy. In the summer, we live outdoors. It's that wonderful connection with nature that is just natural. And the Italians are still really connected with nature. They walk. They forage. They're out there, you know, picking that wild asparagus, the green almonds. There's still this beautiful connection with nature. And again, I think that makes you feel at home in the world to have that and not to be closed in to your really frigid air-conditioned space and not go outside. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with author Frances Mays and exploring the power of place and home. She's made a name for herself writing about her home in Italy, and ever since she penned her story of buying an abandoned Tuscan farmhouse in her best-selling book, Under the Tuscan Sun, Frances has been writing about how we can be at home in our travels. And her latest book is exactly that, A Place in the World, Finding the Meaning of Home. Frances' website is francismaysbooks.com. Frances, I really was um, sort of fascinated by the comment you made in your book, Italians live in their towns the way we Americans live in our houses. So in a sense, Italians, the piazza is is sort of the extended deck or outdoor living room of the Italian family. Yes, the piazza is full of cafes and small shops, so everything's quite intimate. But 
That gathering in the piazza has just never changed in Italy. Even if you go to Milan, in the neighborhoods, they have their places they gather. It's uh, it's still a very strong sense of community. You know, Rome, uh, Palermo, you see it everywhere. It's not just in the rural towns that they've maintained these intimate contacts. It's it's all over. And it and, goes all the way back, if I understand, to Roman times. So this is really ingrained in the DNA of being Italian. Yes, the forum, yes. Uh, the piazza is something that's integral. And then you mentioned conviviality, hospitality, uh, you know, neighborliness. And I know you love cooking and serving food and so on. Your book has recipes in it. Uh, if you think of food as kind of the swizzle stick for this conviviality, and uh, I came to your place in Brahma Sole and you were going to share a meal with me, what would we eat and, and how would you make that meal uh, the inviting kind of experience that would be your goal? Well, seasonality is still really big there. I, I had broccoli last night. It was the first time I had had broccoli since last winter because there's no broccoli in Italy, or maybe there is somewhere, but in our area, you know, there's no asparagus right now. Everything in season. So it depends on what season you came. If it were in the fall, it would probably involve some wonderful fungi porcini lasagna. I think that would probably be number one on a fall menu. And sausages with polenta. Oh. Each uh, season gets really into the food of that season. And heavy ribolita soups and all the hearty uh, porchetta if, if you eat meat. If you do eat meat, the porchetta is really good. <laughs> oh, sign me up. Please sign me up. Francis, the subtitle of your book is Finding the Meaning of Home. And you've lived in a number of places, and, and you're famous for creating a home in Tuscany. Is there one little special moment, one vivid kind of feeling that your ideal home can give you that you can share with us? In the summer nights, we lie down on the grass in front of our house, and the Milky Way is just flashing over the house with falling stars and you get this immense feeling, this totally minuscule of your own life feeling. But you look up and you realize that you're always traveling. And to lie down on the plain earth and look up and realize that this earth is traveling around the sun and that you're always on a journey, but there you are grounded. It's kind of both ends of that question of home and travel for me to have that sense of uh, being at home in the world. You do feel that at that moment when you are connected to the stars, but you're lying on the ground. Mm. And that is the blessing of travel, to find a way to be at home in our beautiful world. Francis Mays, thanks so much, and best wishes with your writing, your travels, and being at home wherever you go. Thank you. You too, Rick. Enjoyed it. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton. Our associate producers are Kaz Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out when other radio stations air Travel with Rick Steves. You can find a list of our affiliates at ricksteves.com radio. 
We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.